We're continuing to look at Mark chapter 1 this morning, picking up where we left off last week. One of the dangers in looking at Mark bit by bit is that it's easier for us to miss the momentum of the book, especially the first chapters of the book. We're picking up today 28 verses into Mark's Gospel. It might be helpful to consider for some comparison that 28 verses into John's Gospel, Jesus hasn't been baptized yet or begun his ministry. 28 verses into Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is still an infant or a toddler. And 28 verses into Luke's Gospel, Jesus hasn't even been conceived yet. But 28 verses into Mark's Gospel, Jesus and John the Baptist have both been introduced Jesus has been baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit and identified as God's Son. Jesus has been driven out to the desert by the Holy Spirit and tempted by Satan for 40 days. John the Baptist has been arrested. Jesus has begun his preaching ministry. He's gathered his first disciples, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And he's entered the synagogue in Capernaum, taught there, and exercised the demon from a man who is in the congregation. All of that in the first 28 verses. So Mark moves fast. He actually uses the word immediately 11 times just in his first chapter. So we've gone through all of those events so far in Mark's gospel. Now Jesus has just taught and driven out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the word has gone, on, gone out about him. In Mark's telling, it would appear that we're still in the same day as those events in the synagogue. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 29. And so with that in mind, let's hear from our text, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. And immediately he, that is Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture that we get of the beginning of Christ's ministry. We thank you for what it has to tell us about Christ and your kingdom, what it has to tell us about you and your heart, Father, what it has to tell us about how you would call us to live in this, your world. We pray that you would help us to be attentive to it now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us, both for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we can look more specifically at what this text has to say to us, I think we need to take a step back and make sure that we are reading this passage, particularly reading what it has to say about Jesus' ministry correctly. 
So what is Jesus doing for those that he's ministering to in our text this morning? We see what seem to be three distinct actions. Jesus is preaching. We saw that in our text last week. We also saw it back in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. And we see it again in our passage this morning in verses 38 and 39. So first, one thing Jesus is doing is he's preaching. Second, he's healing. That comes up in a specific story about Simon Peter's mother-in-law in in verses 30 30 and 31. And then it's repeated in general in verses 32 through 34. So Jesus is preaching, he's healing, and then the third thing we see that he's doing is he's driving out demons. That was the focus of our text last week, and we see it come up again this week in verses 32 through 34, as well as verse 39. So Jesus is preaching, he's healing, and he's driving out demons. Now how do those three things relate? What's the connection between them? N.T. Wright, in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, points out that one of the problems we face as we read texts like this one is that we tend to bring different categories in our minds and worldview to the text than the original audience or witnesses would have. So we might look at this text and talk about them in term, and the healings in terms of being miracles. We might think of it in terms of the supernatural realm that is breaking in and reaching into and affecting the natural realm in which we normally live our lives. But Wright wants to stop us even right there. He writes this. He says, The very word miracle itself, and for that matter, the words natural and supernatural, are in fact symptomatic of a very different range of possible worldviews from those which were open to Galilean villagers in the first century. The evangelists, the authors of the Gospels, used words like paradoxa, things that one would not normally expect, odunames displays of power or authority, or terada or samaya, which means signs or portents. The closest we come to miracle is the single occurrence of themousia, marvel, in Matthew 21, verse 15. Wright goes on, These words do not carry, as the modern English word miracle has sometimes done, overtones of invasion from another world or from outer space. They indicate rather that something has happened within what we would call the natural world, which is not what would have been anticipated, and which seems to provide evidence for the active presence of an authority, a power, a work not invading the created order as an alien force, but rather enabling it to be more truly itself. What is Wright getting at here? He's saying, in other words, when we read these stories of Jesus' mighty deeds, we tend to read them through the lens of our secular post-Enlightenment culture. We tend to see the imminent, material, natural world as a closed unit to itself. We tend to see a hard divide between us and any supernatural realm that may or may not exist. We might not claim to believe that. That might not be one of the doctrines that we profess to believe. But it's our default setting in how we think about and view the world. And then, within that view, a miracle is when some supernatural force bursts through the brass ceiling for a moment, and breaks the rules of the natural realm in order to either do something or to prove something. Wright explains that we see that in the two questions that we often bring to the idea of miracles. Those two questions are, first, is there a supernatural dimension to the world? And second, 
Which religion, if any, is the true one? And in this view, miracles are there to provide data to answer those questions because they are a supernatural intrusion into the natural realm that we live in. Now, while there's some overlap, on the whole, Wright argues that that is not how a first century Palestinian would have viewed Jesus' mighty deeds. Now, that doesn't mean that they would have just viewed them naively rather than critically. Both wise evaluation and naive gullibility existed in the ancient world, and both still exist in large quantities today. No time period has an exclusive claim on either one. And our text is a case in point. Jesus' mighty deeds caused such a stir because people knew that they were not normal. They knew they were not what they normally expected to happen in the world. But at the same time, those first witnesses would not have seen them as an outside force there to break the rules of our natural world either. They would have instead seen them, as Wright puts it, as an authority, a power at work, not invading the created order as an alien force, but rather enabling it to be more truly itself. Enabling the created order to be more truly itself. And that might be the key. For the first century Galilean, these three actions of Jesus would have been seen as part of a united work of restoration of the created order. Jesus shows up in Capernaum, and he begins to restore. He preaches repentance and faith in God, thus restoring the relationship between people and their maker. He heals those who are sick, thus restoring the broken physical world, bringing it a bit closer to what it was intended to be when it was first made. And he drives out demons and evil spiritual forces who were never meant to oppress God's good created world. Jesus' work is one of restoration, of bringing the world a bit closer to what it was meant to be, of enabling the created world to be more truly itself. And its root lay in Jesus' preaching, which he mentions in verse 38. It lays there because it was through preaching faith and repentance, that Jesus was restoring people's relationship with God. But it's important for us to keep in mind that Jesus' healings and exorcisms were not just nifty proofs that he added to his preaching. They were the natural extension of the kingdom of God that Jesus claimed was at hand. That kingdom brought restoration, and that restoration included the heart of each person, it included the physical body of each person, and included the spiritual realm that was over each person. So Jesus' kingdom work here is one of restoration. And that then brings us to the question our text, I think, is raising for us this morning, which is this. Restoration for what purpose? What is the purpose of the restoration that Jesus and his kingdom are bringing in this life? You might be able to answer more easily the value of that restoration in the life to come when we'll enjoy eternity in God's presence. But what is the purpose of that restoration that God brings to his people in this life? What is that for? And that's the question that we need to address this morning. Peter and the people of Capernaum will offer us one answer. Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law will give us an alternative answer. And I think it might be helpful as we approach this question to consider first how we tend to answer it ourselves. What is the purpose 
of the restoration that God brings to us in this life? What is it for? In 2005, Christian Smith, a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, published the findings of his research on the religious and spiritual lives of teenagers in the book Soul Searching, which he wrote with Melinda Lundquist-Denton. Smith summarized the findings of that book in a lecture that he gave at Princeton Theological Seminary, also in 2005. And in that talk, Smith presents his conjecture, in his words, after hundreds of interviews with American teenagers about the dominant religion of American teens. He claims that the dominant religion that most of them hold to is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. According to Smith, though none of the teens would have used that particular phrase, and though few would have been able to really concisely define all of the beliefs connected to that, nonetheless, the dominant religion among them was moralistic therapeutic deism, which Smith says has five main pillars. The first one is, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. The second is, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The third is, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The fourth is, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And the fifth is, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, Smith expands on those five elements in his talk, and he expands on them even further, I would imagine, in his book, but that's the basic idea, those five claims. Smith also points out that moralistic therapeutic deism is not unique to teenagers. In fact, he makes a point of saying that most of them have not come up with them or sought this out themselves, but the place where they've learned it is from their parents or other adults in their lives. It's not primarily or exclusively a teenage view. Smith also points out that there are a number of nuances and varieties of moralistic therapeutic deism. Over the past 12 years, since Smith published his findings, many Christian writers and thinkers have latched on to and critiqued this religious outlook. They've noted and pointed out the pluralistic nature of moralistic therapeutic deism, where we find a God who is not particularly Trinitarian and not particularly tied to the incarnation of Jesus and so not particularly Christian, even though in Smith's research, many teenagers within the church still profess this kind of a view. Critics have also pointed out the moral laxity of most forms of moralistic therapeutic deism, which, while providing some moral framework, tends to provide a pretty lax one for most of the adherents of this view, and one that seems often contrary to the Christian view of the holiness of God. Critics have also pointed out how moralistic therapeutic deism promotes views on feeling good about oneself and being a good person to get to heaven, which would contradict Christian views of sin and salvation. And the list goes on. And these critiques, in my opinion, are all fair, and most of us would agree with them. And yet, while many Christian critics of moralistic therapeutic deism view it through a lens of us versus them, as in, we believe in historic Christianity, and they believe in moralistic therapeutic deism, I still wonder if even we, conservative Christians, have not absorbed our own variant of this religious perspective. 
What strikes me about moralistic therapeutic deism is that at its bedrock, God is there for our purposes. Now, in a view that minimizes the moral element of all of this, Smith says that God is often viewed as, quote, a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. But I wonder if we can't do the very same thing, even with a view that places more emphasis on moral rigor. For instance, might we sometimes treat God as our divine personal trainer? It might sound odd. Bear with me for a minute. Think about it. Think about someone's relationship with a personal trainer. I've never had a personal trainer, so I have to sort of imagine it, but imagine what it would be like. Within their interactions in the gym, it would sure seem like the trainer is the one who is in charge and the client is the one who is obediently submitting to the personal trainer. The personal trainer might be rigorous and demanding. They might prescribe not only exercises for the client, but a whole way of life, including diet, how much they should sleep, how much water they should drink, what their daily schedule should be, and more. And in their direct meetings, the trainer might make strong demands of the client, which the client obediently does their best to fulfill. But at the end of the day, who really works for who in that relationship? Despite the appearance that the personal trainer calls the shots, the truth is that the trainer is the one who really works for the client. And this is most clear in the question of who gets to decide what to do with the results of their work. A good personal tra trainer is really doing a work of restoration. They should be restoring health to the client where it's lacking. But then who gets to decide what to do with that restored health? Well, the client does. The personal trainer might be very important in the process of the restoration itself, and the client may need to follow the rules but at the end of the day, the personal trainer has no say over what the client does with the restored health that they receive. The client might tell the personal trainer that they intend to use their newly restored health to play football or to pursue a career in Irish step dancing. And no matter what the personal trainer thinks about either of those options, it's not their place really to object or to discourage them. The personal trainer is the employee of the client. They provide a service. They help restore health, and then the client is free to do with that restored health as they please. And I think we can have a tendency to treat God the same way. In other words, maybe we believe in the God of the Bible. Maybe we believe in a Christian view of sin and salvation. Maybe we believe that God gives us a, more, a morally rigorous framework to live by. Maybe we believe that in all of this, God brings great restoration to our lives. But what is the purpose of that restoration in this life? What is it for? I think far too often we believe that God restores us, but then we get to decide what we'll do with that restored aspect of our lives. Faith and the Holy Spirit and the hard work of obedience on our part might restore our personal lives to order and peace and productivity. But then that order and peace and productivity is mainly just there for us to enjoy and to do with as we please. Faith and the Holy Spirit and intentional obedience may restore our families to ordered, warm, and loving homes. But then those homes are mainly there for us to enjoy and do with as we please. Right? Right worship, 
right preaching, the Holy Spirit, and moral rigor may restore our church communities into churches that are ordered and lively and active and faithful. But then that church is mainly there for us to enjoy and use for ourselves. Right? Don't we tend to view things this way? At least sometimes? God brings restoration to our lives, to our families, to our church, but then we get to use that restoration for our own purposes, as long as they're not obviously sinful. That seems to be the view that Peter and the first disciples have in our text. In verses 29 through 34, we get a brief picture of what must have been an amazing evening. After preaching in the synagogue, Jesus is now extending the work of restoration that began with his sermon. He has called the people to restored relationships with God. He's healing their broken bodies. He's breaking the oppression of demons, of these evil spiritual forces in their lives. He's doing a holistic work of restoration. The next morning, Peter and the other early disciples get up, and Jesus isn't there. And they go looking for him. A couple of commentators on this passage point out that our English translations tend to tone down the words that Mark uses to describe the disciples' search for Jesus. James R. Edwards argues that the term that's translated search for in verse 36 is better translated pursued or hunted. Mark Horn points out that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Jesus' day, the same word is used for Saul's pursuit of David. And in fact, it is only used in the Old Testament translation to describe a hostile pursuit. Horn concludes, for the biblically literate Greek reader, this would give a malevolent tone to Simon's report, everyone is looking for you, in verse 37. And looking then to verse 37, James Edwards points out something similar about Peter's words. He points out that the Greek term translated looking for there occurs ten times in Mark, and in each instance it carries a negative connotation. He writes, its first two occurrences refer to interference with and obstruction of Jesus' ministry. Its next two refer to disbelief and faithfulness, and faithlessness, excuse me. And the remaining occurrences refer to attempts to kill Jesus. Edwards concludes, Seeking connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than submit and follow in this context. In other words, Jesus has come to Capernaum and he has brought restoration. Everyone acknowledges that it is Jesus who has done this. But it's pretty clear that Peter and the people of Capernaum feel that they should be the ones to determine what happens with that restoration. We see them going to get Jesus. We see them ready to put him back to work to fulfill their vision for their purposes and agenda. But we don't see them asking Jesus what those purposes should be. If anything, it seems the opposite. Peter seems to be stopping just short of ordering Jesus around. Peter has hunted Jesus down because everyone is looking for him. He needs to come back and get back to work and bring further restoration so that they can use that restoration to pursue their own ends. Jesus brings restoration, but now they think they get to use that restoration for their own purposes. That is what we see here. But we also see that Jesus is not having it. What leads 
to Jesus' decision to move on. And why does he do it? We should note that it's not exactly strategic. R.T. France points out that while Mark calls Capernaum a city in verse 33, Jesus calls the places he plans to go now towns, implying that they're smaller. So it seems that far from being a strategic plan, Jesus is actually moving from a place of more strategic influence to one of less. So if it's not a strategy, then what is it? I think James Edwards is helpful once again on this point. He writes this. He says, Amidst the whirlwind of activity, Jesus seeks a still point of prayer with the Father. The work of the Son of God is both an inward and an outward work. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father compels him outward in mission. The significance of Jesus' ministry consists not simply in what he does for humanity, but equally in who he is in relation to the Father. Edwards goes on, Jesus is, is, according to Mark's narrative, neither contemplative ascetic nor social activist. He does not promote an agenda, but derives a ministry from the relationship with the Father. He is the Son, one in being with the Father, and the servant one in being with his will. Now what exactly is Edward saying in all of that? Jesus' union with God the Father drives him outside of himself towards others in love because that is the Father's purpose. The Father's heart for the world extends outward of himself towards his creatures in love. And his purpose is to expand that love through his creation. That is God's plan we see in the scriptures at least as early as Genesis 12. He calls Abraham and tells him that his purpose for him is that through him he would bless all families of the earth. That is the heart of the Father. And so when Jesus, when God the Son incarnate goes to be with his Father and has true communion and union with God the Father, his heart is united with the heart of his Father. So that the purposes of his Father become his purposes. And that union drives Jesus outside of himself and towards others in love. Peter and the disciples and and the people of Capernaum might have had great plans for how they could use Jesus' mighty deeds of restoration for their own benefit. How they could have created a little island of health and wholeness and peace in Capernaum. But Jesus was not interested He knew the heart of the Father. And the Father's heart was for more than just Capernaum. And so he was driven out, out to fulfill his Father's purposes. And we get a picture here in this text that the same is true of Jesus' followers as well. We get that in a couple ways, I think. First, in that we are to follow our Lord's example. If not even Jesus was to decide the purposes for his spiritual success that he had, but if even he looked to his Father and sought to fulfill his purposes, then who are we to think that we get to decide how we will spend our spiritual growth and success? As Jesus communes with his Father, from that union he's driven out to fulfill the Father's purposes in the world. And as we are united to Jesus... From that union, we too should be driven out to fulfill 
Christ's purposes in this world. True union with God drives us outside of ourselves and towards others in love. That is what Jesus is showing us here. But Peter's mother-in-law is showing us that as well. Take a look again at verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Simon's mother, that is Simon Peter's mother-in-law, lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Mark wants us, I think, to notice the difference between Simon Peter and his mother-in-law. Simon Peter responds to Jesus' mighty deeds of restoration by trying to run the show, trying to decide how this new restoration should be used. Peter's mother-in-law responds by joining Jesus and serving. Mark, I think, is pretty clear that it's not Peter that we should be looking looking to for guidance in this text, but it's his mother-in-law. Now, it's easy to pick on Peter when we read some of the Gospel accounts, but when we're tempted to do that, we should also remember that the early church testifies that Peter was Mark's primary guide in writing this Gospel. In other words, it's most likely Peter who wants us to look at what happened and to realize that we should emulate not him, but his mother-in-law. And in her, what we see is that we are not just to receive restoration from Jesus. We're not just to obey his commands so that we become more spiritually sound and fit. But rather, we are to be taken up into his larger purposes so that our union with him draws us up into his mission, just as he is drawn up into the mission of his father. Now, we could think of it this way. If we think back to our illustration of the personal trainer, this might sound a little goofy, but again, bear with me. There's a sense, I think we could say, that Jesus is a bit more like a football coach than a personal trainer. Now, what do I mean by that? I played football for seven years in middle and high school. Uh, Unfortunately, I was terrible at it, um, but I kept coming back each year anyway. And one of the things from that time that I especially remember are what we called double sessions in the weeks leading up to when school would start in high school. Every year, for several weeks before school started, we would have three practices a day. In August, in New York, where these summers are fairly hot and humid. They were hard practices. I remember one kid quit by lunch on the first day. But we're all there for it, and we were there because the coach had a job to do. He, not unlike the the personal trainer we thought of a moment ago, had to do the hard work of getting a bunch of lazy high school boys into shape. In short snippets or glances, my old football coach might have seemed similar to the personal trainer. And he had some of the same goals as a personal trainer would have. He wanted to get us into shape. He wanted to restore in us from being out of shape to being healthy and strong. But in a larger way, he was very different from a personal trainer. He had a lot to say about what we did with the restoration of health that he brought us. If I showed up one day and told him that I wanted to keep working out under his direction, I wanted to keep coming to practice, 
and receiving the restoration to physical fitness that he was giving me, but I didn't really intend to play football with the team anymore, that I was instead going to use the fitness he was giving me uh, for the purpose of pursuing a career in Irish step dancing instead, he would have laughed and told me that that wasn't happening. Now, why not? I imagine there's a few answers to that question, but one would be that he was not getting us in shape just for us to use as we saw fit. He was training us and restoring our health for a purpose. He wanted to lift each of our eyes from our self-centered little goals that we had and help us to focus on and catch a vision that he had for our team. He had a mission for us about how we would play together, about what we should do on the field, about where we could go as a team. And he wanted, he actually expected, that as we spent time under his training, we would not just receive fitness from him, but we would be caught up in his mission and purpose and use that fitness for the purpose that he set before us. That's a bit like what we see in our text. Obviously, in our text, the restoration is far more significant and holistic. The connection is far more deep and meaningful, and the mission is far more important. But we see a similar pattern. God has a mission to renew this world. His love for his creation drove him outside of himself and towards us in love. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, because of his union with his father, was also caught up in that mission. And he too was driven outside of him and towards others, towards us, in love. And now we too are drawn into fellowship with Christ. We receive the holistic restoration that comes with salvation. We know him. We receive the benefits of knowing him. And we have union with Christ, our Savior. And true union with Christ takes us up into his mission and drives us outside of ourselves and towards others in love. Or to put it a bit more simply, as Jesus does in John 20, verse 21, he says to his, father, to his followers, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. True union with God drives us outside of ourselves and towards others in love. What does that then look like? Well, it means that as individual Christians, our salvation is not only for us, ourselves. Your spiritual growth your faith, your knowledge, your obedience to Christ, the variety of ways that God is restoring you are not for you alone. It means that God intends for you, as an individual, to use those gifts for the good of others, to bring restoration into their lives. How has Christ restored you? How has he blessed you? How should you use that to go out and serve others? It doesn't need to be dramatic, or showy. Peter's mother-in-law's service was remarkably ordinary. But where might you be using the restoration Christ has given you for your own purposes when he intends for you to use them for his? It also means that your family does not exist for itself alone. God has richly blessed many of our families. He has brought wholeness and health where there is so often brokenness and dysfunction in the world around us. And of course, on some level, if your family has that health, it is a gift for you to enjoy. But that's not all that it is. 
God has given you that restoration for you to then use it for his purposes, for the extension of his kingdom. If your family has truly been blessed by God, then it should be pushed to look outside of itself and towards others in love. Who might Christ intend for you to serve with the restoration that he's given you? When we, when we as humanity, were isolated and alone, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did not close the doors on their perfect fellowship. They didn't turn inward and ignore those of us around them. Their heart reached out to us in love. They opened up their fellowship to us and they drew us up into the warmth of their inner life together. Will we be taken up in their mission with our families as well? Or will we selfishly hoard what has been given to us? The kingdom of God is not here to serve our families. Our families are here to serve the kingdom of God. So our spiritual growth is not for us alone. Our families are not for us alone. And finally, we see that our church is not for us alone. Peter would be an essential leader in Christ's church, but he had to learn this important lesson over and over again, it would seem. Again and again and again, Peter tried to build a perfect little spiritual island. We see that first here in Mark chapter 1 in Capernaum. Then we see it come up again in his earthly fellowship with Jesus in Mark chapter 8. It comes up again in Mark chapter 9 during the transfiguration where Peter is ready to set up tents on the mountaintop and stay there forever. It comes up again in how he views the Jews and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Again and again, God had to draw Peter close to himself in order to remind him once more that Christ's church is supposed to be driven by their union with Christ outward, outside of themselves, and towards others in love. Are we sometimes guilty of making Peter's mistake? Do we sometimes want our church to be a little spiritual island in the midst of a sea of brokenness? Do we sometimes want to bring Jesus safely within the gates of our little Capernaum and just hole up here with him? Well, if we are tempted in that direction, we see here in our text that Jesus will not have it. Jesus has a mission in this world. And if we're not part of that mission, then we need to ask just how close to him we have really drawn. If our worship, if our prayer, if our hearing from God's word, if our fellowship, if all of these things do not drive us outside of ourselves and towards others in love, both as individuals and as a congregation, then we're doing something wrong. Because if we're failing to be caught up in God's mission in this world, then we need to ask how close to his heart we are really getting. Our lives, our families, our church, these things do not exist for us alone. Are we treating them as if they do? Are we allowing the heart of Jesus to so capture our hearts that we love what he loves and we hate what he hates and we are caught up in the same desires and purposes that he is? Considering questions like that can be discouraging. We can easily see how we've used Jesus' spiritual blessings in our lives for our own purposes, 
how we've used what he's given us in selfish ways. We can ask ourselves why we do that. We can feel frustrated at how even when we desire to go more outward, we find it so hard, seemingly impossible to do so. When we think on those things, when we feel that discouragement, we need to remember two more things. First, we need to remember that having our hearts taken up into Jesus' mission is part of the work of restoration that Christ is doing in us now. And we're not done yet. Now, that doesn't mean that we just passively wait for Jesus to change our hearts in this area, but it does mean that we acknowledge that we are works in progress. We can ask him to help us grow in this area. We can ask him to help us to repent. We can ask him to heal our twisted hearts. We can ask him to drive away the dark spiritual forces that would tempt us towards self-centeredness. That work of restoration is exactly what we see Jesus doing in our passage this morning. So when we see our shortcomings, when we see our failures, when we see the way our hearts are not caught up in this vision, we're not to despair. We're to look to Christ and we're to ask him to continue to straighten what might now still be crooked in our hearts and to more and more unite our hearts to his. And finally, one other thing we should remember is Peter. Jesus did not abandon Peter in our text this morning. He kept working on him. He didn't abandon Peter after Peter tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. He didn't abandon Peter when Peter wanted Jesus to just stay with him and James and John on the mountaintop with Moses and Elijah. He didn't abandon Peter when Peter tried to keep the kingdom just for the Jews. Jesus kept working on Peter. He is far more patient with us than we tend to be with ourselves. And over time, Peter grew. Not all at once, but bit by bit. And so let us pursue the same road that he did. Let us grow as Peter did by spending time with Christ. And as we do that, let us watch Christ and seek to live as he lived, by pursuing the heart of God by communing with God in all the ways that he makes himself available to us, by seeing what he loves, seeing what he desires to do in this world, and letting the love of God for, the, for his broken world capture our hearts so that our union with him drives us out to a lost world. For as Christ reminds us here, that is why he came. Amen.